I'm Ryan Jeffrey, and this is the Passionate About OSS podcast. It's episode two, and uh, the purpose of the, the Passionate About OSS podcast is to shine a light on some of the brilliant minds in OSS and telecommunications industry. Uh, a little bit about the people's background and uh, the great knowledge, tips and techniques that, uh, that they can hopefully share with us. Uh, today's guest is Peter Dutt. Pete is uh, Chief Architect of Synchronos, been with uh, Spatial Info, which then became Synchronos, or is now bannered under Synchronos, and has been working with that team for around 20 plus years. Pete is, uh, is what I refer to as a tripod thinker in, uh, in OSS and, and Telco, and uh, tripods are some of the most valuable people that I've found in the industry because they have the ability to bring in the concepts of IT, networks and operations and business all together and make sense of that. And uh, that really helps lead the, the teams that work with them. Uh, and Pete's also been a, a real go-to contact for me within the, the outside plant uh, aspect of OSS and uh, physical network inventory. So welcome to Peter, Peter Dutt. Me, Ryan. It's a real privilege. It's quite a, an introduction you've given me there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. but, but you you started off in, as a mathematician by uh, by your study and uh, and a developer, but obviously there's a lot more uh, in the background there that perhaps you'd like to elaborate on a little bit. All right. Well, if we start right back at the beginning. Um, yeah, I mean, I've done. I did maths at university, and you know, and kind of fell into programming. But really, I only picked maths because I wasn't very good at English, <laughs> and <laughs> I wasn't very good at um, writing um, when I was a, a kid. I was kind of a, a slow developer, actually. Um, but um, yes, yeah, as soon as I got to uh, A levels or VCSEs, or the equivalent, are I, I kind of hit my straps and. Made it to university and got a degree in maths, but yeah, I think I've I've always been interested in tinkering with computers and and things, and always been keen to take things apart. And I don't know, that was my my early childhood was fiddling with stuff and breaking it, and I don't know, building go karts and um, things like that. So it was a kind of engineering from the ground up from um, nuts and bolts and planks and things. Uh, was, it was my very early days. But um, when it gets interesting um, and is that I um, arrived in Australia even longer ago um, as a backpacker with very little money and um, ended up doing a job which was um, collecting field data for a mining survey company and that involved lots of running around the bush and collecting data. And it was, it was quite adventurous out there in the, the wilds of the outback and Northern Territories and things. But um, as a result of that, I actually got into processing some geophysical data. And that would have been in um, early, early 90s. And um, the reason that's important is that um, we started... Um, uh, kind of converting the data into maps. So I got into early uh, GIS products and image imaging um, bits of, of software. Um, and that was, uh, you know, my, my path into um, OSS and telecommunications was was via geophysics and map production. So that's, that's how I ended up um, in, in spatial info. But, yeah, it was, a, it was quite a while ago. Yeah, indeed. So Spatial Info was the first real step in the, the OSS journey, um, but it really uh, transitioned across from uh, the GIS type uh, type background that you had. That's right, yeah. So we, we, I did, um, before um, Telco, I was, the, the company was really focused in on geophysical data, and I worked with CSIRO and travelled all over the place, uh, processing quite a lot of, Really interesting maps. Actually, one of my uh, my claims to fame is I uh, I wrote some very early software. It wasn't actually that sophisticated, but it allowed um, two uh, of these um, kind of images. They were intended to be things like 
um, magnetic maps. And so people had flown magnetic surveys, but allowed two of these to be joined together and we had some feathering and smoothing algorithms. So really it was a very early, um, something like Photoshop. You could um, clip two images together and join them, but um, it was used by CSIRO to produce the first image of the complete image of Australia's magnetic background. And um, on one of my visits to Canberra, I walked into the foyer of this big office and there was a really big map. It was probably two or three metres by two or three metres, even probably bigger than that. And um, the guy pointed at it and said, you did that, you know, your software did that. And, you know, mine did little parts of it. He'd sat there for months joining all these little patchwork things together with my software, but it had produced this amazing image. Fantastic. Yeah. And how did you how did you originally meet with the Spatial Info team and how big were they? How old were they at the time? Yeah, um, so I was uh, just a contractor and uh, started um, uh, as a, a programmer um, under the tutelage of Jeff Lang, who's still there today. And um, But, yeah, I, I, when I joined, there were probably uh, maybe um, – somewhere around 10, 18 um, programmers there in the, the dev team. But it was very much a small Australian company. And the, the background for Spatial Info is um, really it was founded by uh, Tony Cotter and um, some of his uh, business partners. But um, they early on in the, the 80s, they um, wrote a piece of software called CPR, which was picked up by Telstra. So they had a, a strong um, backing and really um, the ideas, the original ideas in CPR, which stood for Cable Plant Records for Telstra, um, have made it into Spatial Net, which um, was the, the main product of Spatial Info. And really, the whilst not much of the code uh, transitioned across from CPR, in fact, none of it, um, the, the the kind of ideas behind um, where the product fits in the market and what what it was you know the the scope of what it was trying to do uh, originated from that um, those initial versions with Telstra. And was it a, an easy transition to make over from what you had been doing to to then coming across the spatial info? Well, interesting you, you asked that, that question that way that. Um, you know, I'd, I'd come from a background of data processing. That was, you know, what I'd been doing, scientific data. And um, a lot of the, the data we're now dealing with in, in Oracle, because uh, behind um, SpatialNet is an Oracle uh, database. And, and really, it's the, the, the part that um, helped me was um, I'd done a little bit of um, kind of modeling in my previous job. And that became a real central part of my role, uh, early role within um, Spatial Info. And that's probably the key to, to Spatial Net is the richness of what we call the model, which is uh, how we, we interpret the world and put it into our database and, and model those, those um, physical assets that um, Spatial Net deals with. And was that largely defined already at that stage, or did you have a big input into into the way that data was modelled? I think um, bits of it were defined, and but we were a lot of the work was um, finishing the model or you know um, extending the model. Um, there was uh, you know the the basics were in place, so we had a an idea about how we wanted to model something like a pole or a, a manhole. And uh, it was putting that into our new system and um, making sure it all worked together with things like the ducts and the cables and how that was all going to work together. So, um, yeah, the, um, most of, some of the ideas were there. It was fleshing them out, putting, hmm. putting meat on the bones of the ideas. Did that come intuitively, I guess, just understanding the, the ducts and poles and all of those relationships and, and data hierarchies? Yeah, I wouldn't say intuitively, but it, it's one of the, um, the, the traits I look for when we're, we're hiring people and 
when we're interviewing and you know the, the people who've done well in the company have had this ability to kind of pull things apart a little bit and understand and it's that you know I've got teenage kids and it's always a context you know don't just leap into something it's have a look around and see if you fully understand it before you um, you try and embark on this thing but it's it's um yeah, context being aware of how it how the thing you're developing um, needs to fit in with the rest of the system and what purpose it has when you're you know don't just write a program it's it's a real bad mistake to get somebody to uh, define you know design a, a program and specify it all out and hand it on to somebody to develop where the developer doesn't really have a clue what they how, how the, the big picture all fits together yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And in those early days, were you already covering all the different network types, so the the copper, fiber, HFC? It's interesting that um, we we had a um, one of our key first customers was a small um, fiber to the home company in Sacramento. So that was very early on in probably even before the the dot com kind of boom or during the dot-com boom so that would have been early uh, 2000 and um the, i can't remember the name of the guy who um worked there but he had a very um kind of uh spelled out it was actually how he wanted the whole of his oss to to work together and um i remember thinking that was the first time i i talked to customers and look we've We've got lots of, we've had many wonderful customers and really you learn a lot from your customers. But this guy had a vision for how he wanted um, his bits of software to work together. And we we um, focused in on fiber to the home and the fiber model and making sure that was really um, solid as part, you know, very early on in the history of spatial net. So that... Um, fiber was one of the the stronger parts, or still is, of, of the spatial net offering. Um, RF and copper came along uh, later. Um, and in fact, there was a slight predecessor of uh, spatial net, which is the main product now, which was um, an ISP product so that, that kind of got folded into spatial net at one point as well. Uh, very interesting. So um, when you joined, it was it was only a handful of people. But uh, how big would uh, spatial info slash synchronous be these days? Yes. Well, uh, so the the story is that um, spatial info uh, was acquired. I think it was two thousand twelve or somewhere around there, twelve thirteen, uh, by uh, Synchronos. Uh, Synchronos are a much larger company. They're listed on the NASDAQ. Um, and there's, I can put a link in the, the feed about the, the company itself. But um, the Synchronos um, really um, hit the, the news by developing some um, software which was linked or used as part of the iPhone uh, 3 activation um, back in... I've got that written down somewhere, but I think it was about uh, 2003 or uh, maybe 2006. But around the time when iPhones really launched, um, uh, Synchronos um, provided a piece of software which assisted and sped up the uh, activation. So every single phone that was activated in the US went through that um, Synchronos uh, software and uh, really... um, gave the, the company a, a really a high profile and um, spurred the way to quite a few acquisitions and things. So we were one of the um, uh, the acquisitions. So, um, my, you know, I've changed from working in what was essentially a small Australian family company to quite a large um, uh, company. So I think there are about 3,000 employees in, in Synchros in the various parts of the world, um, large development team in Bangalore, um, uh, head office in New Jersey, and um, other offices scattered in various parts of the world, including Australia. 
So I guess over that time too, and, and particularly in recent years, you've really looked to evolve the product into, into different areas. Are you able to describe a little bit about the products and, uh, and yeah, I guess why they're valuable and who they're valuable to? The, the main um, product that's uh, developed in our, our division of the company is, um, is spatial metal. That's the historic um, uh, engineering tool. So that's a, um, an engineering um, tool that, that the front um, end view of uh, the network is based in a map format. So that's where the, the spatial name comes in. And um, it's the, the traditional client has been AutoCAD. And that's, it was a, a thick client for uh, many years. That was the main um, way we delivered spatial um, solutions uh, was through SpatialNet. Um, around um, probably 10 years ago now, uh, we, we started developing um, uh, Spatial Storm, which is our service-oriented platform, and started looking at uh, web services. So um, I've been involved in uh, several projects that have, have used um, Spatial Storm to integrate and share that data that's, um, that's held in, within Spatial Suite um, out to other parts of the OSS system and uh, provide um, you know, data to other, other um, platforms. So um, these days, uh, SpatialNet is still um, one of the main parts of the software, but um, that, that old um, thick client is, is rapidly um, being, well, not replaced, but you know, there's still a place for an engineering client. But uh, we're now looking at a lot more lightweight clients, browser-based solutions, and certainly uh, automation through Spatial Storm and um, integration with other tools. So um, one of the, the projects um, I, I was heavily involved in was with um, stand-up of NBN. So um, Spatial Net was selected as, um, or Spatial Suite, I should say, um, was selected as the the, the main uh, physical network inventory system uh, for the NBN rollout here in Australia, and that was a really exciting project to work on because it really went from um, zero, there was nothing there, to um, having to stand up a system in a matter of weeks and start loading data and then really um, very quickly had to start um, putting customers through and activations and really making sure that we, we had a, a system that was automated. So you, you've you worked on that with me on one of those projects as well. Yeah, indeed I did. And I guess uh, to the the evolution of the product has also allowed you to, to go after an important additional persona. So uh, I guess traditionally for the designers and the, uh, the planners and those kind of personas, but also with the more modern architecture gives you access to, or gives you the potential to build more tools for the mobility and the actual field workers who interact okay. with the data more directly rather than yeah. the, the old A0, A1 type sheets and, and markups. But now it's becoming more of a mobility solution, I, I imagine. That's right, yeah. So we're, we're getting a lot of interest in, you know, um, little apps that you can um, have on your phone that uh, bring up a splice drawing or you can um, walk past a, uh, a poll and say, hey, this one needs a, a bit of an audit. Do a, do a bit of a markup. So there's a whole bunch of um, little apps that are coming. Um, but they're really the... the the key to all these um, little applications, mobile devices, offline devices, um, comes from um, the power of Spatial Storm. That's, that's our OSS um, platform that provides all the web services behind those tools. Yeah, and I guess a, a lot of the a lot of the network that you're actually managing is, is quite passive in nature, so therefore it doesn't have an API that you yeah that can exactly. integrate to. So, and it's always been a challenge in that space around data quality because you can't easily reconcile. Are you also developing tools, or seeing other tools come onto the market that assist with that uh, that such as image recognition or 
QR codes or, or barcodes to, to be able to quickly identify assets, particularly in something like a pit where you may have multiple cables or, or multiple splice uh, boxes or similar. Yeah, well, you've, you've hit the nail on the head, really, that because everything's passive, it's really hard to, um, you know, query it and work out what it is and where it is. And you, you, there is a, an element of relying on on this data. You know, when when you send somebody out into the field, um, they they need to know exactly which manhole to go to, which splice to open up, and which cable um, if they're going to be making changes. And that sometimes they open up the manhole, and really, there's very little. Um, markings on those cables and oh it's worn off or the you know the the um, labels that were attached have faded and maybe it's um, up a pole and um, the you know just the weather or the snow and ice have worn these labels off and I mean you you can sometimes um, attach a device and um, send a signal down and work out which port it's hitting but it's really quite primitive, and the the the, the tools that they've got um, are are limited. Um, one thing uh, I've been talking to a company uh, recently who um, are are using um, the 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 vibrations from things like cars and maybe even a jackhammer, um, and they're they're managing to pick up some of those signals through the the fiber cables and. Um, do several things with it. First of all, if there's a jackhammer going off near your fiber cable, that, that may uh, set an alarm off and you might want to go and uh, check whether there was a, a dial before you did query or something like that in the same location. But they can uh, triangulate these signals and um, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of interesting stuff there. So um, they, they claim they can also... Um, maybe correct locations of cables too. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that space. I've been talking to them. Um, we'll see what happens. But um, th there are some interesting technologies coming online. Um, things like barcodes and QR codes, you're relying on people putting the labels on. And a lot of the, the existing cables that are out there and network simply, you know, were badly done or the names have changed, um, all sorts of things through acquisitions, people lose lose data. Um, but ultimately, that's one of, one of the things I'm really um, keen on, passionate about, as, as you would say, is, is data quality and trying to provide good quality data to people and um, so they can do their job, really. That's the... That's the 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 aim of the game here. Some of those are really fascinating uh, concepts too. Often we find that those data records are so old they may have come from a um, a drawing that was done thirty or forty years ago. And so having the ability to come back now and and use that uh, that technology is based around the uh, learnings from the mining industry. I understand so the, the kind of sonar ground penetration radar type. Uh, type technologies. Watch the space, see how it goes. Um, the yeah, I think there's interesting things there, especially if they get it running on some of the um, like as a software. Um, yeah. Uh, so you can virtualize it onto different boxes and do a quick check on because the when you look at some of the cities, I was um, I was looking at uh, and a bit of the network around. Um, I think it was Seattle or somewhere, and just the. Almost every street in uh, you know central Seattle has a fiber cable going down it, and that, that was just one company's data. And there's there's multiple companies operating in there. And there's there's so many cables out there, and keeping track of them all and understanding exactly uh, what you've got in the ground is is really important, particularly when we start um, moving more towards um, things like automation and and these, these uh, virtualized networks that are auto-switching and uh, moving between different circuits, it's, there's a lot of um, focus on, on the active parts of the network that can perform these switches. But in between those actives are you know, kilometers of um, fiber cable and a passive network that you're relying on um, maybe... Um, 
old records or um, somebody, you know, worst case is a pile of spreadsheets somewhere and some hand-drawn maps. But, you know, one of the the things we've been really diligent with with uh, SpatialNet is having tools to collect all that information and try and bring it into the central repository and manage it in one place. Yeah, and really becomes a really valuable asset for things like you, you touched on dial before you dig, which is an Australian concept of the utilities and where their underground cable assets are, yeah. um, which brings in comms, but also power and water and sewerage and so forth. It's a really interesting industry to work within. Um, so it's one of the, the key benefits I see in the outside plant is really around the geospatial uh, representation of data and representation of an organization's assets. How do you see that? Or what are some of the, the use cases that you really see around the geolocation and proximity that uh, the customers tend to uh, need? And, and maybe even some of the weird and wonderful ones that maybe uh, people don't understand so often or aren't used so regularly that you think are quite powerful. Yeah, well, um, I mean, the, the, some of the ones that spring to mind when you, you talk about things like that were um, we've we recently um, introduced or uh, migrated some data into the system. And it was a, a small, or oh, not small, uh, a medium-sized kind of data centre as had uh, several floors of, of racks, uh, several hundred racks. And the, the racks were divided into rooms and uh, two floors, but it was quite a, a large um, building. And we were showing the customer how the data looked um, and uh, the, the several ways we can theme um, these, uh, you know, these views. And one of the, the, the themes that we, we showed was um, just a space utilization. So we, mm-hmm. our model um, calculates, you know, we, we've got a, a rough idea of how high each shelf or chassis is within the rack. And we were showing them um, which racks were full and which ones were, were empty. And that was a themed view. So it's just a, a color coding um, view of the, the footprint. But um, the, the customer was quite surprised by how many racks were actually full and, um, or, you know, didn't have um, any uh, considerable space, less than 10% space in them. And, um, you know, we, we had to bring up several rack elevation views to, to prove that, mm. you know, these rooms that uh, there was a, essentially a, it's supposed to be a, a building with a lot of uh, spare capacity. <laughs> several of the rooms didn't actually have as much capacity as uh, he had thought. Yeah, and I guess the implication is also the the power and heat and and cooling and so forth that's mm. also needed. Yeah, yeah. So that's that. That was the and even another one is um, uh, that that customer was uh, keen on uh, weight as well. So there's one yeah. I hadn't um, considered, but yeah, the, apparently um, uh, the, there's weight restrictions on the floors uh, of this building and. They, they added weights for all their, their pieces of equipment and sure it does does add up a lot. So uh, yeah, weight restrictions on those too. But yeah, the, the standard heating and cooling and power um, for a data center and just theming it. But it, I think it's, that's the, I mean, it's a bit like me and my, my CSIRO picture of, the, of Australia. You know, sometimes you need the big picture and um, you can look at information in rows and tables, but it's having uh, summarizing it and presenting it uh, in a way that's digestible um, for something like a whole building and being able to easily spot something that's wrong, um, just like that color coding exercise. That was a, a simple one, but um, the the second one that where, where geolocation is. is really important is um, diversity. And, you know, it, it, I'm sure many people um, know about diversity, but it's it's something that um, is important. You know, accidents do happen, cable cuts do happen. And um, it, when they're supposed to be uh, diverse and uh, some sometimes 
they started off diverse and one way or another they've ended up non-diverse <laughs> over time um that that and it's actually it's funny i was um literally um doing yet another diversity project just uh, an hour before this call so we're we're using um some new technology actually it's quite um, interesting probably go off on a, a tangent here but um uh, we're using a, a graph uh, database to to track the the traditional connections we have in Oracle. Uh, Oracle is a relational database, and despite the name relational in there, it's not hugely efficient at tra uh, traversing all those relationships, particularly when you've got massive um, data sets. So some of our customers have you know national data sets. Of, of across America, and you know, we, we've got MBN with all the the, the assets in um, in Australia uh, in the database, and trying to traverse um, many many tables with lots of relationships in in Oracle can actually you know you can go slow on that, and that's one of the areas these new uh, graph databases are really efficient at. Absolutely, the the, um, the the little calculation I'm, I'm performing at the moment is. Um, Using some of the um, the new data science algorithms uh, that are available on these uh, graph databases to perform calculations that really you you wouldn't even have attempted uh, in in Oracle. So one of them is a, a diversity check, and I'm basically I'm bulk tracing all the the important circuits for this customer, and I'm able to tell them which ones are really diverse and which ones are really not diverse, <laughs> and um, even though their, their names uh, indicate they're you know primary and protected, sometimes they um, they travel down the same uh, same cables same duct or, or something. Same yeah. duct, yeah. And I started off um, my, my intro to to graph was thinking uh, I just put the fiber data in there, but as soon as you you put the fiber data in, it, you you think oh maybe I should have the support structures in yeah. there, and then. Once you've got the support structures, you think mm, maybe we should have the roads as well and, <laughs> and the addresses and the buildings. And suddenly, um, you know, we've got a lot of data in there, but it means we can now do, you know, route finding down roads as well as uh, support structures. But yes, I can now tell you if you've got two cables on the same road as well as uh, two cables in the same duct. So uh, some of those, you know, there's several, I'm sure you've got anecdotes as well, but lots of stories of outages and how things can go wrong um, when diverse circuits are not diverse. So, Peter, I guess another one of the, the use cases that I think of um, due to the broad nature of the way that you can use it is having the, the proximity or the, the ability to put a polygon or a lasso around assets geospatially and then run use cases off that, whether they be for marketing or for operations or design teams. Perhaps tell us a little bit about some of those use cases that you you do and have seen done. Yeah, uh, well, it's a really important part of how our software works and really how the industry works and and, and um, the, the life cycle that um, data and plants and designs and, you know, the networks themselves go through. It's that... Uh, quite, you know, people build these the networks in little boundaries, and you've got to know which addresses are in, in which boundaries for marketing purposes. You've got to know, you know, whether which amplifiers belong to which node in an RF node. You really a lot of it uh, boils down to um, how's this object connected, how does it fit into the bigger network, and. Where customers the, connect, which, uh, which yeah. assets customers are connecting and to. There are so many of the use cases that um, the serviceability, the feasibility of whether a service can be fed to a customer, um, rely on um, just understanding where that object is. And that's where, you know, the mapping and having a, a map view uh, is really important. And, you know, the, when I started um, uh, with with spatial info, that was a distinction. One of the the real differentiators about spatial info was that it had this what we at that stage called a seamless map view, and it was like you can keep on panning. We just add more content into the map, mm. you know. Um, 
now that the world's got um, Google Maps, and it doesn't actually feel that different. But at the at the time, it was people were used to working um, with drawings, and you get to the edge of a drawing, and you don't really know what's on the other side of the the map. You know, you had to hunt around and find map to be and see who was working on that and mm. whether they'd made changes. So these days, you know, people are a lot more, um, you know, GIS has really become common and uh, people use it everywhere. Spatial net, you know, is more, much more than a, a GIS. Uh, I'd say um, uh, the, the model behind um, what, what people interact with, there's probably 60% of it is aspatial and it's it's not it's the it's the fibers it's the splices the the splice trays that we don't we don't tend to visualize in a map context mm. but it's all the the little parts that go to make up the big picture understanding how things fit into boundaries and and really the the ability to kind of cascade a boundary from one state to another. So you might have a an area that's uh, been designed or maybe upgraded for some um, so, you know higher bandwidth broadband. Um, being able to do a design in that area whilst keeping the old services going, and then uh, you know roll over and switch it over to the new services, and then market them to the people in that area. All relies on managing what's inside a boundary and what's not inside a boundary. Not obviously too for operational contexts like uh, like cable cuts and so forth, just mm. understanding where they may, may come into play and yeah. particularly when they're married up with remote fiber test type kit. Perhaps. Yeah, well, I mean, the, that's a, an argument for, you know, we're back on diversity again, but um, I mean, the, the cable cuts happen a lot, uh, you know, maybe people, um, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but there's, there's probably tens of them happening in a network like Telstra's every day. And a lot of them are actually, you know, almost friendly fire. They're accidental cuts that um, maybe the record's out of date and it says this fiber's spare and um, somebody comes along and snips the fiber. And it's, um, I mean, I've got a, a short anecdote of, um, a national um, outage that was the one of the main cables that connected Melbourne to Sydney, um, and the you know the, the series of events that led to that outage were if you go back and look at it, I had to um, assist in how the how on earth this had happened. But um, stage one was somebody needed to do a little bypass. There was a bit of road work going on, so they put in a temporary cable around the junction uh, just so the work could go in. And as part of that, 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 that was the diverse link for this main um, this circuit between Melbourne and Sydney. Um, they removed the alarms on it. And as part of doing that in our software, um, they, they put the temporary change in. That was uh, what we call post, it was made um, so everyone could see it. And when the work was done, they um, put the cable back to how it should be and the, the temporary bypass was removed. What they didn't do was put the circuit link back in on that, um, that part of the cable. So after they'd um, removed the bypass, that cable looked spare. And a few months later, somebody came along and said, I need a spare fiber. And they, they used that fiber. Now, as part of um, this bypass work, they'd also turned the alarms off and um, the alarms were came on again, and uh, well, there was a, a cancellation of the alarm. So that fiber was cut. The the, the diverse um, link was cut and used for uh, another purpose. And then when the real outage happened on the main, <laughs> suddenly there was no um, diverse link, and that was uh, Melbourne the, to Sydney was lost. Well, temporarily, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was interesting that um, I got a phone call because uh, I was working with the company at the, the time and we, we were just developing um, uh, one of our uh, uh, side products called Hindsight, which allows you to go back in time and see what the changes were. And just it was just happened to be 
fortunate that they'd given me several um, data sets to load in into hindsight. And in a matter of um, probably half an hour or so, I was able to get on the phone back to them and say, hey, I've got hindsight. the, The guy was telling me about it. Um, he was he was clutching at straws about what, whether um, there was any older records that could be used. But not only did I have old records, I had the whole um, I could rewind time and tell him exactly which fibers used to be um, a part of the diverse circuit, and I could see where it had been used and how the the bypass had been taken away. It was all there. So I mean, my my little uh, part was to tell him. You know, cable ABC fiber fourteen in this place in it was just outside Canberra or somewhere like that. But you know, so it, the data's all in spatial net, all the fiber cables and the the um, the connections, and every change you make is now stored in this. Well, it was a prototype product at that stage. Most of our customers have got it now, so mm-hmm. we, we we've got this ability to go back in time and look at how things are changing, which is pretty powerful. Yeah, and that's a brilliant scenario that you've just described there because it's more complex than a traditional cable cut where a a backhoe comes through. That's actually a a chain of events that happened over a long period of time. Yeah, it's not just one. You can trace back and diagnose. It's not just one problem. It's a a series of things, maybe, you know, a small mistake at the beginning, but um, the knock-on effect uh, and that was, I think the the outage did last several hours, but... um, we were able to assist on that one. Yeah. So uh, you've just given a really brilliant explanation of the of a number of use cases that really help to articulate why in this increasingly virtualized world where a lot of people just seem to be disregarding yeah. the physical and geo uh, context and the, that data, uh, I think you've done a brilliant job of explaining why they remain so relevant today. I, I, I think it's it's more than just remain relevant. I think they've become even more relevant. That mm. we're, we're as well as uh, you know network virtualization. It's it's a wonderful thing, and um, mm-hmm. carriers are jumping jumping on it, and it's been rolled out in many places, particularly with um, you know newer technologies like five G. But mm. it it all still boils down to physical assets and connections in the ground or Mm. in the air and how these circuits are actually carried, what's carrying them. And whilst there's a lot of emphasis on the the logical layers that are applied over the physical parts of the network, Mm. the physical is still really important. And I think as the OSS systems that are managing this become more automated and more virtual, and there's a tendency to kind of back away and just say, well, it looks good at the, the macro picture, but when the alarms go off and something goes wrong, you actually, you've got to have the right amount of detail to drill in and find where the real problem is. And, um, you know, I was reading one of your um, blogs about the root cause analysis and, how that's, you know, you, you had it spot on that sometimes we're presented with a range of problems and it's trying to work out what the, the common point of failure may be. And mm. if that common point of failure is actually something like a, I don't know, a flooded um, hub site, it, it could be several components that are not necessarily, um, you might have several splices there and cables or it might be in the same rack or something, but it may be actually hard from a, a schematics point of view to work out that they're they're all flooded at the same time, or the power supply's gone out, or what, whatever the, the the common point is. Yeah, absolutely. And often, I guess they are presenting or being presented with information from multiple systems. So it may be a power management system. It may be virtualization infrastructure manager or it might be yeah. uh, element managers it might be from all of these different points with, um, without that that geo reference and actually knowing where to go and send somebody if something breaks um, I think is still really pertinent today that is often glossed over by the 
the virtualization of OSS and, and networks that we're going through. Exactly as you said, it's a it's a wonderful thing. It just I believe that the uh, the challenge of fault fix, particularly in the physical sense, uh, becomes more difficult. Right. Um, so I guess you've you've spent 20, 22 years or so with uh, with spatial info now synchronous. How do you think that your role has changed over that time? You started off as a contractor and now uh, chief architect. Obviously, yeah. there's been some transitions along the way. You know, I'd, um, I'd look back on it and, you know, the, it was a really um, it was a good place to learn about tel telco systems. And we, like I said, we've had some really uh, engaging um, customers who've, um, you know, I've, I've learned from our customers as well as um, people like Tony Cotter and Jeff Lang and some of the, 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 uh, the original um, people in Spatial Info who really, um, tutored us and gave us insight and um, but yeah I, I moved from being um, a nuts and bolts uh, programmer and um, down in the um, the deep dark libraries of fiber connections and things in spatial net Airy um, stuff. yeah and and then I um, you know I did a bit of a spell as a, a product manager for spatial net itself and you know, did a bit of team leading there, and then really uh, when we started getting involved in uh, in NBN um, around 2011 and 12, um, I, I've been involved in uh, you know, uh, countless little projects with NBN. But I, I started to really we, we only got to grips with um, Spatial Storm and our services oriented platform and using um, putting automation around spatial net um, it's my, my role changed from developing spatial net to helping people use spatial net mm. and also um, you know um, as you become more senior I think it's a really important part of your your role is to to help um, nurture you know junior developers and and I, I've always quite liked training and mm. um, being um, showing people how we think the software should work and you know, and customers as well and getting getting feedback on on how the tools are performing because it's it's quite um, it's, it's easy an, an easy uh, trap to fall into is that you think you know everything or you you know you, you've got enough to develop some solution and really that uh, you've got to go double, double, triple check that you've got the right context, that the the tool, you, you actually understand how this tool um, is planned to be used. Um, quite often, you, you, you know, we, we find customers who have been using the tool for many, maybe even for five, six years or you know, more, that um, they've got some little thing they're doing with the tools that you look at it and you think, Either that they don't know about another way of doing it that's much more efficient, or that um, wow, you know, we should really improve that that little thing they're trying to do there. That's really not a good way. We can we can provide a better solution for that. But it's actually seeing how people are using something is often the the, the best way of doing it and talking to people about those problems. So yeah, I, I moved from hands-on developer through to using spatial net and trying to integrate it and you know some of the the projects we, we did with um, nbn were around automation and activation of customers that was quite exciting to turn on some of these services and as more and more customers um, were activated at nbn just watch these um, automations scale and um, and really uh, manage the, you know that that was a an exciting place to, to work at times that um, there's always tight deadlines and but yeah that spatial suite uh, spatial net and spatial storm that really um, have become the the cornerstone of the um, the pni within nbn that the, they rely on the data in um, in spatial net um, and it really feeds out into the rest of their oss 
Absolutely. And and you touched on a few points there that uh, having seen it firsthand, I, I think you you do a fantastic job of the, the trainer, training and mentoring of customers, internal teams like the testers, trainers, developers and so forth who uh, I guess the, the telco side of things and the, the visualisation of the data isn't necessarily always their thing. Uh, or their background, they may have more of a, say, a development background. So getting them up to speed on the context of what it is they're developing for, uh, I think you do a fantastic job of. And one of the other things you touched on too is getting out and speaking to customers. So uh, over the years, I've seen a little bit of ivory tower concept happening within product development where uh, the product developers spend quite a bit of time just in the ivory tower away for, from customers and uh, potentially a little bit of a disconnect and you definitely act as the, the interface uh, to assist that but also have a strong belief in developers should get out and work with customers from time to time but not always under their nose because that, that can be uh, not so beneficial as well. Distracted. <laughs> yeah, it's, absolutely. There's a balance but look, I, I, I firmly believe if you're writing software, you need to know what your customers are doing, and that's that's probably the most important aspect of you know creating good software. Is you've got to understand what your, your what your customers are doing and the problems, the challenges that they're they're facing. Um, that's that's uh, front and center. Yeah, and you have a, a fantastic team in there. So some real yeah. genius genius level people uh, developing some of the code who have also spent long enough in the industry that they know quite a bit about telco and GIS and uh, all the technologies that they're developing in as well, which is great. To have such a, a, you know, a powerful team, uh, I think they're full credit to uh, the people I work with as well. Yeah, there's, there's definite um, standout uh, developers who they know who they are, but they, um, it's it's really and now I'm in a, a role of a more of an architect. You know, I, I tend to be up the front end of projects where I'm I'm there for the the initial scoping phase or the um, knocking the edges off it and trying to imagine how it will will transpire and how, how some a solution can work in this space. Mm. It tends to get handed on to to others to kind of flesh out, but it's still really rewarding. Um, to to actually see some of these features and tools um, be developed and come you know come out and be useful, I I, I really get a lot of um, pride out of that and you know satisfaction. And have you developed any particular approaches or techniques for starting a, a project anew? So being that the the leading edge on the project and starting it off and how to capture that and then hand that over to, to other people to then deliver upon. Yeah, the, the guiding principles of successful projects is, is, is you know, it's a, I, wish I, I wish I really knew how to do it, but I, I, I think it is, it's that being uh, aware of how things fit together. I'm using that word aware a lot in context, but, you know, be present, listen, understand what you do know and what you don't know and try and ask the right questions that open people up and mm -hmm. get them to provide more information. But really, um, I, I think there are some pitfalls that you can look out for to avoid. Um, they're, they're more easy to spot. Things like, I mean, I'm like, actually, you're, you're an ideas person as well, but, you know, I have lots of ideas and, um, sometimes you can get distracted by your own ideas and you can get you can get too attached to them you know your own mm. little babies um, I think it's important to I mean don't not have ideas but throw your ideas out but accept if they're all dismissed and mm. something else comes along as a better solution you know don't, don't get too attached to them but I, I think you know the main one is keep it simple and mm. that um, you As know, technologists, we often get lost in the, in yeah. that trap, and, um, and I feel like the OSS industry, is, uh, as a whole, we probably make things more complex than they need to be. Exactly, and I'm going to give you another little anecdote here. And 
you and I both know the person, but I'm going to try and not say his name. But you know, we have this incredible um, developer who's really a really, really talented guy. And on several, more than one occasion, he, he's he's been able to develop these, these um, really efficient programs, but actually miss the, the whole point of the software. It, it's almost right, but he's spent so much time considering the the conditions the, the edge, the cases. Fail, the yeah, edge yeah. cases the failure points how yes. it how it's what it's actually what it shouldn't do that he's actually forgotten to you know write the row in the table or um, actually uh, send a little um, checkbox onto the next part of the system that's the whole point of the software and i think in in a way that's it's often a really good place to start when you're designing these solutions is what's the output of this? What, what does this new thing, what does this new feature, what's, the, what's it supposed to do? And if you work back from what's it supposed to do, what, what's the ideal output back to what, what little crumbs you've got as inputs? It's probably uh, not even uh, software design 101. It's where the, the lecturer draws a box on the, on the great big whiteboard and day one of, you know, computer science it's what does this thing actually have to do and but you start with the the outputs and then you draw how can i make it happen and where do i get my info from what do i need to make it happen yeah absolutely so i guess over the years too you would have seen a number of key inflection points you've talked about a few of them today from the the monolithic uh, type software, the the AutoCAD, the graph databases, and and so forth. Um, what other ones would you talk about, both historically and also perhaps the uh, the inflection points that you're seeing coming, and how you're re-steering uh, the company and your role around those inflection points? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I'm going to try and divide it up into different. Um, Ideas, but you know, from a inflection points for the from our company point of view, really, um, you know, there, there've been in my career there've been two big ones. Um, a lot of our customers, which are uh, the telcos and cable companies, mainly in the US, really, that's where most of our and Canada, um, they they suffered badly in the the dot com bust, which was early two thousands. Didn't really get affected by the GFC quite as much. That caused us to shrink down our company size quite a lot. So uh, at one point, that was Spatial Info, probably at its peak went up to about 70 or 80 people. And we had offices in Denver and um, in Melbourne. At the low point in 2003, um, we were down to probably six developers and um, probably same again in support staff and uh, you know, it was a very small company at one point there, but in a way that made you more dog of all trades. And you, mm. you have to you have to test your own software. You have to come up with better ways of testing. You have to design and um, when there's only so few of you. And I, I really think um, it, it's, you know, having um, a look at how other people work and shifting around roles is quite a, an interesting thing to do as well. See. So see what's happening within your company from different parts. But that, that, that's the company history and then getting uh, acquired by the American company. But in terms of our um, you know, market and what's happening in the, the industry, you know, I think the, the big disruptor at the moment is really uh, 5G and virtualization and probably seeing it in the news, there's quite a lot of cable cutting going on in the, um, in the US and that's uh, people kind of switching off their their, their old cable TV and um, just using streaming services that maybe even just a smart TV itself and maybe a, a wireless um, 5G dongle or a, even 4G uh, for some of them um, or even the mobile, you know, just plugging it in and watching on, on tablets. So there's a big um, shift there. I think really the um, if you... Think of them the companies instead of the cable companies as just communication companies. It's still communication, and behind, I mean, whilst five G can 
bounce its signals around and form a little mesh, there's an awful lot of fiber behind it. Mm. And from our point of view, managing those networks actually gets more complicated. You know, the, the task of managing um, a denser network like mm. a, a 5G, um, it, it just means there's more fiber in the ground and yeah, we've yeah. got to, We've got to design it, come up with better ways of designing it, managing it, manage the life cycle of these projects. Um, there's a lot of work in it. Yeah, even uh, are you crossing into the in-building coverage challenge where the, I guess there needs to be increased infrastructure within the buildings to be able to support the higher frequencies of 5G? Yeah, well, um, from personal experience, we've been in lockdown for um, a year. I've been working at home for most of the year. I went in back into our office in, um, in in Melbourne recently and sat back down at my old desk. And uh, the year I've been away, uh, another high-rise building's gone up beside yeah. me. And suddenly my phone hasn't got any reception. And you know, it's like, oh. Um, but yes, uh, uh, we, we're definitely um, looking at uh, in-building solutions. Um, there's another arm of um, Synchronos is uh, really looking at smart buildings and smart cities and the internet of things. So I've been in contact with them and there's uh, watch this space. There's a possibility of some integration. there. Fantastic. So I guess a couple of uh, final questions is, um, so you're in your role, but also in your nature, you're obviously a very, very inquisitive learner. Where do you go to find your information? You've talked a lot about uh learning a lot from customers, but are there any particular sources of information that you find really valuable out there? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, it's osmosis. You, know, I don't, mm. I don't, you, you acquire it. I mean, it's just talking to people. Um, and, you know, I do read some of the journals, the trade journals, and join in the TM forums and things. And But really, it's um, it, it's osmosis. And But I, I think a lot of it, I'm going to say um, it feels like it's common sense, you know, that it's keep it simple. Uh, as mm. an architect, it's, um, yes, there are design, you know, architecture books you read and the, the there's, there's ways of doing things and patterns you can follow and that, that's all good. But I, I just kind of, it's got to make sense in my head for it before I really um, want to go with it. And the real, you've got to understand how the, you know, uh, how uh, an enterprise bus works before you're really confident you design for it or a JMS queue. And I, because I, I've got that programming background, I really uh, need to see something in action before I, 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 I'm, I'm confident that um, I, I, I want to develop with it. I think that's the, for, for me, it's always more than boxes in PowerPoints. Mm-hmm. It's always, there's always some, something behind it you've got to draw on your own knowledge and but yeah there's uh, you know a large part of uh, um, architecture is diagrams and schematics but they've got to mean something you've got to understand how the data's flowing behind it and um, try and communicate it that's that's one of the things that's really complicated as a an architect and uh, even you know the systems um, designer is the systems you're trying to deal with are really really complicated and there are tools out there that you know allow you to put uml together and archimate that allows you to uh, show architecture but you're modeling and you're trying to represent really complicated um uh, systems and a lot with lots of different interactions and uh, you've got to understand them first you can't just um, dive in and uh, put a few powerpoints together and and wing it it's it's You've just you've really got to know your stuff before you you, you get up and present that that information. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I guess over the years you've worked with many uh, really talented people. So for for somebody coming relatively new in there in in this industry, what are the the traits or the the things that you would recommend for for people to to develop uh, to make them great? So have risen through the ranks like yourself. You know, my I think the traits that help me are you know being inquisitive and and being um, having ideas and just thinking around things. I mean, this is going to sound stupid, but um, I'm a keen cyclist, and it hasn't happened you know for the last year or so. But 
religiously before that i i rode to and from work but giving yourself um you know in my case it was 40 odd minutes on my bicycle to just let your mind go mm. and and just maybe just toss a, a problem around in your head and more often than not when you come back to it somehow it's easier and you know those are hard moments mm. you know I, I can i can have a uh, a little aha moment. Sometimes I even dream about them. You know, it can be in the shower, mm. it can be on my bicycle, but it's. I think it's just letting go. You know, having a problem, understanding it, tossing it around for a while, and then just letting go and um, just letting it bubble around in your subconscious for a while. Um, I don't know if that's a trait. I don't know how you develop that, but um, <laughs> yes. uh, just and then not getting too sidetracked. I think you've got to remain on the same game and understand what the main goal is and um, be persistent and mm. yeah, follow, follow through on things. That focus on uh, Steve Jobs, so a real yeah. artist ship kind of concept too, I guess. All right. Um, so we've covered uh, some fantastic space today. Where can <laughs> people reach out uh, and find you if they've got any questions following sure, yeah. on from this? I mean, it's peter.dart at Synchronos. But, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll um, send you some um, socials and feel free to contact me. Um, love to hear from you. And certainly if you've got uh, physical network challenges, um, I'm interested. Even if you're not using our software, actually having the use cases and what people are struggling with is really interesting to know. So that's, uh, that's, that's you know, my, my question back to you is if you've yeah. got some, some problem you want to um, discuss with me. I'd, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. All right. Brilliant. Uh, so thanks very much, Pete, for being on the Passionate About OSS podcast. Oh, and thank you for spending some me. time with us today. And thanks also for the audience. Hopefully you've uh, managed to uh, uncover some real gems in what Pete's had to say today. Um, so thank you and uh, goodbye. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. No, uh, thanks for having me, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Passionate About OSS podcast. You can find more episodes, more than 2,500 blogs, and our contact details over at passionateaboutoss.com.